Gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh the child together. Have a real good time together. It's me, Evan. And Ian. We are here today as Jokerman Podcast. It's always been, this is Jokerman Podcast, podcast about Lou Reed, Jokerman Podcast, podcast about John Cale. This is Jokerman Podcast for the first time, and I guess really technically for the only time, Jokerman Podcast, a podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale. Yeah, just the two of them. Just the two of us. Just the two, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Wearing raincoats. Um, it's, uh, it's been a long time coming. I feel like this is, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to hype us up too, too much in advance before we actually get into this, but you know, I, I feel like there have been like, you know, kind of landmark conversations that we've had in the past and like big ones that we've been leading up. Like, I feel like shadows was a really big one. Shadows in the night, Bob Dylan, uh, more blood, more tracks was a really big one. Triplicate. Tri- uh, triplicate was a big one. Loaded, I feel like was a pretty big one. This this I feel like has the the capacity to uh, to be up there. Like I said, I don't want to blow us up too much. I just don't want to fail to live up to it. Sure. I mean, cat out of the bag. This is my favorite album. There you go, folks. So if you're looking for the three star rating, you can just you can you can turn the show off now. I think I think that uh, that that spoils that element of the show for you. Yeah. Sorry. Well. We're talking about songs, songs for, for Drella from 1990. Beginning of a new decade. But cheers. I just, yeah, you know, to, to the 90s, to the decade in which you and I were both born. Uh, yeah. I'm actually drinking for this one once again. I went to the store and got some nice wine because I didn't want to just swill down whatever was in my house. What kind of wine are you drinking? It's a chilled red. Ooh. Like a Beaujolais? Don't ask me so many questions. There's not much information on this <laughs> All right. label. It's red and it's cold. Good enough. You say Songs for Drill is your favorite album. Why is Songs for Drill your favorite album? I mean, it's hard to say in one... When did you come to Songs for Drill? How about we start there? I don't know. You know, it's just always been there. Well, no. It was in the midst of going through all of Lou Reed's catalog. Mm-hmm. There was a time when I went through everything by Bob Dylan and David Bowie, and Lou Reed. The whole discography downloaded, and I went through it all. Mm -hmm. And I don't know at what point I happened upon Songs for Drella. I just remember being really amazed and delighted and and just shocked by what I was hearing. Interesting. Because it's so unlike everything else. Yes. Um, And yet it's like... The core members of the Velvet Underground. It's our boys. The dynamic duo. Back again for the first time since 1965. And, you know, I've always been interested in art. And Andy Warhol was a figure, obviously, that I was aware of, like anybody else. And I think everybody is aware of Andy Warhol in a similar way, at least superficially. But I hadn't done any real reading any real research any deep delving into who he was or his relationship with the velvet underground mm-hmm. it was all just kind of mysterious and to then suddenly be presented with this piece by john kill and lou reed that's in his voice that's in and from andy's perspective mm-hmm. and it's done in this spartan simplified way i think in an effort to maximize clarity the effect is just really powerful 
and being aware of you know, musical theater. This, is, this uh, is the only piece of musical theater that could ever be considered cool. Well, it, I don't, it's, it doesn't even scan as musical theater right. because it's so cool. And yet it is a great, great piece of musical theater to the point where it, it makes others look bad. Like, I respect Stephen Sondheim, but even the best, most layered and thoughtful musicals and stage performances of any kind just don't have what this record has, which is the this connection, this provenance to the subject matter that is so loaded with history and personal baggage. And you see that getting worked through for the sake of the subject being honored. Mm. So you're saying that when you listen, when you heard Drella for the first time, it was you, you were hooked, you were into it. It was something that grabbed you and you were on the same wavelength. I think I was really fascinated by it and I like couldn't believe it. And so I kept listening to it again and again. Interesting. This minimalist musical of Lou Reed as Andy Warhol. Like, what is that? Lou Reed and John Cale as Andy Warhol. Well, yes. Don't, don't sell John short. <laughs> Lou has sold John short, so it's our duty to sell John long. <laughs> I didn't uh, really ever think too much about the actual uh, collaborative process, and I hadn't thought too much about it until recently when we were doing some re- research. Well, we're certainly going to have to get into that. I take it you weren't as quick to adopt the uh, record. I was not. Absolutely not. And I think that's maybe why this is going to make for an interesting conversation, because uh, everything that you've said about it so far, you know, absolutely true. And I, I, you know, completely co-sign all of it. Um, The one difference being, you know, I came to this, I think, like post Velvet, like after I'd gotten through all the Velvet stuff. And as I was really kind of getting my feet wet into the Lou and John solo, you know, universes when I was listening to Coney Island Baby, and to Paris, and to New York, uh, and to Vintage Violence, and then I saw like, oh shit, there's this record, there's a Lou Reed and John Cale record, and there's only one of them, and you know, they didn't do anything else, and this was like 20 years after the Velvets broke up, this has got to be absolutely amazing, I can't believe what what um, uh, this must sound like, and I turn it on, and like you said, yeah. it's the fucking <laughs> plonking piano notes from John. Uh, and just absolute deadpan, beautiful line delivery from Lou Reed. And it's, it is, I got to say, it's the last thing in the world that I would have expected uh, as a, whatever I was, 19, 20-year-old kid going into this. Uh, and at that time, it's the last thing in the world that I would have wanted uh, from, from these two who I had just, you know, just think about it, just, you know, a few months earlier, I had just been like, you know, cracking into Sister Ray. And that, that yeah. was my, like, that was my connotation of Lou Reed and John Cale and the collaboration that, that, uh, the two of them had artistically. And then Small Town is the next thing that you hear. Um, and it just, you know, I was, it was just like, you know, when, when you're a kid, when you're a baby and you have a little bit of mustard or something, and it's just like a shocking, bracing flavor. And you're just like, ugh, I, I, I'm, I don't want this. I, I can't, I can't handle this. Uh, and I just, I put it away for, you know, a considerable amount of time, years. Um, and, uh, and over time, but over time, uh, you know, obviously I've, I've grown. I've, I've become a little wiser. I, I hope I, I like mustard now for one thing. Uh, and yeah. so <laughs> I've come back to Drella with, uh, you know, a, a wider, uh, more gracious kind of um, uh, mindset towards it. And certainly since we, you know, since this entire project even became a twinkle in our eye, however long ago at this point, 18 months ago, uh, I have really kind of knuckled down and tried to help myself get along to the central core of what's going on here. And, uh, you know consider my opinion officially changed from where I was as a lad forever. Uh, yeah, exactly. Forever changed. Um, the story of this record of, of making this record is the, this, this push and pull between collaboration and confrontation, uh, and rivalry and passive aggressiveness and fucking mutual distaste for one another and petty bullshit. It's something John talks about in his book, What's Welsh for Zen. And in the liner notes to the record itself. Yeah, literally there's a, a thing in the liner notes where, um, I guess, it, because the process was so strained, uh, in the typical way you can imagine, uh, 
Lou kind of being a bit of a a, a hard-headed presence, to put it mildly, against John. Um, John actually felt the need to put this uh, little disclaimer. Statement. In. <laughs> says, Songs for Drella is a collaboration, the second Lou and I have completed since 1965. I must say that although I think he did most of the work, he has allowed me to keep a position of dignity in the process. <laughs> it therefore remains, as intended, a tribute to someone whose inspiration and generosity offered over the years is now embraced with much love and admiration. Oh my God. John Cale. That's the wildest liner notes that I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, well, Lou just above it has another, uh, has his own thing. Yeah, a uh, longer, thicker chunk, right? Yeah, which actually just kind of goes through the songs and gives a little context. Sure. Um, which we don't need to read. But uh, something that actually resembles normal liner notes instead of this yeah. suicide bomb that John has left in every package. But I, as you just said, I really don't want to spend our time talking about that because. I think that the, all you need to know is that this was not an easy record for them to make together. And the fact that it did end up being made through that, the fact that they both agreed to do it and then did it and performed it more than once. And there's a film of it. It shows the idea behind this was meaningful enough to both of them that they were willing to put aside all of that all of that stuff in Lou's case especially as is kind of uh, made clear in the record you know he he and Andy Warhol had fallen off he had really kind of turned his back on Andy very much so in a way that was a deep regret and to get back together with John Cale is such a meaningful gesture in this grander gesture of trying to rectify this denial of of what was really a beautiful, crucial relationship. Mm -hmm. Let's set some context. 1987, Andy Warhol dies. Gallbladder operation done poorly, uh, medical malpractice. And he checks into New York Hospital on the Upper East Side alone under the pseudonym Bob Roberts. Pretty good choice there. Um, has this surgery uh, after a series of pains in his side. Seems like it's all good. He's dead a day later. The lawyer for his estate says no doctor looked in on him following the surgery. The floor nurses never looked in. The only one to inquire about Andy Warhol's condition after his surgery was a resident in training who called the private duty nurse on the phone. Uh, the nurse who'd been reading her Bible at the time noticed Warhol had turned blue. His pulse was weak. When she couldn't wake him, she called the floor nurse, who in turn summoned an emergency cardiac team. Warhol could not be revived and was pronounced dead at 6.31 a.m. on February 22nd, 1987. About a month later, there is a memorial service that we've talked about uh, in Dimes for Mystery um, uh, that takes place at St. Patrick's in New York and that is really kind of the gathering of everyone that was in Warhol's orbit in New York City at any point over the preceding decades. There had been some private services and I think he was actually buried outside of Pittsburgh next to his parents, uh, you know, where he had come from, obviously. But uh, finally someone, you know, ha had figured out how to get uh, a bigger, showier, more party-like kind of thing put together. Uh, which John writes about in his book. And that party, that, that party following the memorial service at St. Patrick's is the genesis of Drella. Uh, just to, to hear it from John himself, uh, he says, Lou and I were both at this party following Andy's memorial service with 150 of the most famous people in New York, plus Andy's family. It was the first time we'd really spoken to each other in some time. We'd pumped into each other a lot of times before, but he wasn't interested in communicating, probably because I was still drinking. Billy Name was standing between us and included us in his conversation. He was talking to Victor Bacris, who got scared and ran away. First, Julian Schnabel came up to me and bulldozed the idea through. He said, look, you got to do something for Andy. I replied, it would be a bit tough to do anything now. No, no, Julian said, let's you and me get together and write something. Then he said, let's get Lou over here. And I, John, thought, what the hell is Julian doing? Does he always do this for people? 
The first time I saw him, he was a busboy at the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club. Check our show on uh, the Ocean Club bootleg in 76. But now that he's got these paintings with the plates smashed all over them, he's got a whole new view of life. This is what success in New York gives you, a big mouth. This is all John. (laughs) A few days later, Lou and I started to discuss doing a collaboration. Wow. And from there, it seemed to happen pretty quickly. John, I believe, claims that he came with a few songs already into this situation. And Lou, for his money, says that they just kind of shacked up in a studio together and banged out most of the music and figured out how to work it together in about three weeks throughout 19, you know, mid-87. And then ultimately, over the course of some time, Songs for Drella, this suite of music, is what emerged. Well, that's really interesting that it happened in the wake of uh, Words for the Dying. Initially, that project by John Cale was conceived of as a sort of opera about the life and times of Dylan Thomas. It just seems like it's perfect timing because Julian Schnabel, uh, thank you, had the presence of mind to see that these two guys were just right here and like it's john was already ready like primed to do it this is that project but just insert andy warhol right he he was and he wasn't primed to do it you know uh, with lou i should say and and that's why i do think the way that the record was made and what ended up happening afterwards is sort of inextricable from from the record itself from from the thing uh you know the object that is produced because yeah john was there at this service. Lou was too. John had some music. Lou, I'm sure, had some ideas as well. I mean, Dimes for uh, Mystery. I keep, <laughs> I've had this stupid brain worm for the last 24 hours that keeps telling me that the title is not Dime Store Mystery, but Dime Square Mystery. Dime Square really Mystery. Hate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot eject that from my brain. Hopefully, now that I've said it, it'll, it'll get out. That's great. Um, now I have it. Yeah. Anyways. The Last Temptation. They, right. <laughs> Um, they both are in their own little kind of bubbles, in their own worlds, probably thinking of their own uh, different relationships with Andy. And it, it sort of takes outside forces to put them back together. Like if Julian Schnabel had not been there and forced them to have this awkward conversation at this one event, who knows if it ever would have even happened. It's, it's so poetically significant that another painter is the one who tells them you got to work together right, right. and, and they thank, actually do it and thank god that he did obviously but at the same time i think it also speaks to the, just this vibe between the two of them between lou and john that just like there was a reason they weren't working together they hung around you know john went over to go swimming in lou's pond and they played in each other's bands and stuff you know backing up for odd shows here and there at certain points throughout the 70s and 80s, but there was a reason that they didn't sit down and decide like, hey, we're going to really work together again as collaborators. And then they were sort of foisted into this situation and we have this extraordinary document of it, but the process of creating that document also kind of... Drove them back apart. Exactly, yeah. reminded them both of why they were in the, in the situation to begin with where they were standing at the same party and not talking to one another. But they had a reason to do it. And for that brief time... The reasons to work together overpowered that. Absolutely. That's the real story of the record. And they were the only ones with that reason. They're the only ones who could have told that story that way. Exactly. Exactly. But that's enough context. The album itself is really, you know, the story of a man's life and one of the most significant in 20th century American culture for that matter. So there's no way not to end up talking about nine million different things that that he ended up being connected to, including the very subjects of this show. Well, shall we? Let's. When you're growing up in a small town, when you're growing up in a small town, When you're growing up in a small town, you say, no one famous ever came from here. When you're growing up in a small town, and you're having a nervous breakdown, and you think that you'll never escape it, yourself or the place that you live. Where did Picasso come from? There's no Michelangelo coming from Pittsburgh. If art is the tip of the iceberg, I'm the part sinking below. Town. 
The music is so good. Uh, can we we haven't said this yet, but the music of Songs for Jelly is so good. Uh, let's, well, let's just establish I, that. I, I wouldn't call it my favorite album if I didn't think <laughs> that all of the songs were great. Um, great. It's, it is so extraordinarily just ballsy is the only word that I can think of to yeah. make this record, to be these two guys and make this record and have the cover look like it does and do it at this time and have this incredibly loaded, weighty, extraordinarily emotionally resonant conceit to the whole thing. And this <laughs> this is the way that it starts. <laughs> I love well, it. Well, it starts humbly, which is the way that Andy Warhol's life started. Growing up in a small Czechoslovakian enclave in pittsburgh the song is piano and vocal lou giving this sort of just slightly uh warhol like affect to his voice a subtle but genius characterization you know just the way that he delivers certain lines feel like well that doesn't sound like lou reed i love bad skin bad eyes gay and fatty fatty. people look at you funny (laughs) Um, oh, uh, what's something to which you were suited? Getting, getting out, out of here. here. Picasso. Yeah, well, that's Lou's uh, way of... Yeah, I mean, it, it is inextricable from... It's Lou and it's Andy. And this first song is really just Andy's knowledge that he had to be where things were happening. As we get to later, this worry about slipping away being kind of a motivating factor. When when Andy Warhol was a kid, he had St. Vitus dance, this debilitating condition, and it actually resulted in a lot of the... Uh, I, I think it actually contributed to his sort of albinism. Is that something you can get later? Like, that? that's a condition that is on set in, in later into your it life? It affected skin pigmentation. I just know that it kind of fucked him up. Okay, <laughs> sure. Apparently he shook so bad he could barely hold a pencil and so couldn't be at school and was bedridden Sure, for months, um, during which he was waited upon by his mother. I don't want, want to give a whole biography. But, uh, dial up the Andy Warhol Wikipedia, folks, if you're curious. Just focusing on the song, Small Town, it is doing so much work just based on the way that it sounds. I, me personally, I would not have been the only one coming to this record and expecting it to sound like anything but what it actually sounds like. Lou has just released New York. He's like back rock and roll with the fucking leather jacket. Like, it's time to kick some ass again. Let's do some Velvet Underground shit. And so Small Town has this enormous burden on it. And they do it. I think they do the exact right thing. It's two minutes long. It's like it is just in and out, and it just like completely radically reconfigures exactly any sort of expectations that anyone coming here might have had. And um, it it goes on to open up. You know, the the record musically is going to open up a little bit. You know, later on into songs and become a little more uh, uh, like what people might expect from the two of them. But it's. We're we're not ever gonna get back into white light white heat mode. Like this is this is a totally different world, totally different artists, totally different approach. And so I think it's a daring move to start the record off this way. But it's exactly the right choice. It sounds so uncool, is what it is, and it it also just sets the stage for uh, this is Andy. This is not John. This is not Lou. This is actually attempting to give something of the character of Andy Warhol as a young kid. Lad. His ambition. And like so that the tone of it is this kind of plucky, funny, plunky, determined little number. And that is the character that comes across effortlessly. Hate being odd in a small town. If they stare, let them stare in New York City. Hey, this pink-eyed painting albino. How far can my fantasy go? I'm no dolly coming from Pittsburgh. No adorable lisping Capote, my hero. Oh, do you think I could meet him? I'd camp out at his front door. There's only one good thing about a small town. There's only one good use for a small town. There's only one good thing about a small town. You know that you want to get out. When you're growing up in a small town, you know you'll grow down in a small town. There's only one good use for a small town. You hate it, and you know you'll have to leave. 
open house. Mm. When people refer to the generosity of Andy Warhol, which is something that I think uh, people who are close to him in the way that Lou and John, and when I have seen Jonathan Richmond and he talked about Andy, this idea of him being generous comes across. Open house is sort of this spiritual ethos, this traditional ethos that, that is a Czechoslovakian custom passed on to him by his mother to give people little presents, to invite people up for tea, to have this kind of availability and a sense of sharing. That's what the song is about in, in its most essential form. Please, come over to 81st Street, I'm in the apartment, above the bar. You know you can't miss it, it's across from the subway, and the tacky store with the mylar scarves. My skin's as pale as the outdoors move. My hair's silver like a Tiffany watch I like lots of people around me But don't kiss hello And please don't touch It's a Czechoslovakian custom my mother passed on to me invite him up for tea open house open house it it explains that idea while also telling you about the early days of uh Warhol in New York right um you know someone bring vegetables someone please bring heat giving, gifting, giving things, and getting things in return. Sure, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we're laying, I mean, they're telling a story here, right? And they're, they're building a character. Like, this really is, I think, Lou's time to shine, uh, because he has made all of this hay all throughout his career about, like, I'm a fucking, I'm a writer. I, I'm a, 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 an author. This, my music is literature. Um, and Songs for Drella really is his opportunity to flesh out a three-dimensional character through his writing. Berlin being maybe the exception, but it's not as, it's just not as fully realized. He's he's fleshing out this character and beginning to build like this story that they're going to tell over the course of this whole record. And this, this concept of Andy as this person who is desperate for connection and for partnership and, and people to be around him. And yet someone who also, you know, needs his own personal space and feels out of place around other people. I like lots of people around me, but don't kiss hello and please don't touch. But he's got this open house. These people should just come over, anyone who wants, you know, come through. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to have this big coterie of individuals around me at all times. And that's going to obviously evolve into the factory. And then ultimately, according to Lou, at least, you know, the way that this, this dramatic arc is, is set up, you know, the, the, the Valerie Solanus element of things is kind of inherent in that. Um, but uh, here at the beginning, yeah, we're, we're, we're establishing the world of New York. We're out of the small town. Andy is drawing shoes, right, as a like, yeah. little advertising guy. Um, An advertising illustrator, in which he would later become basically the biggest. Of, you know, he was like the most in-demand, hottest ad copy illustrator. Um, but he started with just getting this job. I think I got a job today. They want me to draw shoes. The ones I drew were old and used, they told me. Draw something new, open house. And the way that Lou says draw something new on the record is so great because there's so much in that little tiny moment and the way that Lou delivers that line that suggests everything. He says draw something new. Like this thing of new is given a moment and that's so crucial to what Warhol would do 
Right. It's 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 more significant to him than it is to the, the speaker of the line. You know, don't don't draw old shoes, draw new shoes. But Andy is hearing it draw something some something new. He took draw something new to the absolute most extreme interpretation possible. Yeah. And it starts with him just being told like do something less old fashioned. It's all right there, the kernel of where things would go. This episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. And then there's the great lines about, you scared yourself with music, I scared myself with paint. I think that's just a brilliant way of describing inspiration. In those two lines, like the nature of the connection, the deep connection between Warhol and and Lou and the Velvets is that mutual awareness of we both did something that we recognized in the moment wasn't done before. Clearly, they both knew that about each other. Kindred spirits. Fly me to the moon. Fly me to a star. That's the first time you hear John's voice. That's right. And they sing together this line that really has nothing to do with the nuts and bolts of drawing shoes and moving to New York and needing to get out of your small town. The first time you hear them sing together is this purely romantic statement. Fly me to the moon. The first moment of beauty, like unrestrained beauty on the record. As, as easy as it is to talk about Warhol in terms of sort of a craven one could say commercialism, a materialism. There's a thing that drives that that's not materialistic. It's it's more these ideals about stars. Something brilliant and special and beyond is not up there, but is right down here. Because there's no stars in a New York sky. They're all on the ground. Oh, such great line. Yeah. You could write reams and people have about Warhol. You wouldn't say as much as this song says. I think I got a job today. They want me to draw shoes. The ones I drew were old and used, they told me. Draw something new. Open house. Open house. Fly me to the moon Fly me to a star But there are no stars in a New York sky They're all on the ground You scared yourself with music I scared myself with pain I drew 550 different shoes today, it almost made me faint. Open house. Open house. get this moment of 
what I consider like interiority, like the, the actual character here yeah. is like thinking to himself. And that's thematically like, like musically kind of put across by the two of them shifting into this suddenly musical and beautiful and, and, and touching kind of register. Whereas so much of the rest of the music that are, that's around it is really just kind of deadpan and straight like that droning kind of uh, uh, organ that that keyboard that John is on is not ugly by any means but it's a really kind of just dry and straight kind of sound and just very very briefly they shift into this moment of transcendent beauty to underline the fact that here's this guy that has thoughts and feelings and and these enormous things beneath the surface the way that they're able to just weave those two elements together into the same song is it's extraordinary and it builds perfectly on the last one where there's this one little moment, this one little line, how far can my fantasy go? Right. And the next song is just musically, like sonically, and in the text, it it starts exploring that further. And then it just keeps going. Style it takes. I mean, this song. Oh, man. Maybe the most purely just like satisfying individual song on the entire record. And John's first moment of lead vocals, it should be noted. Yeah. Well, do you, we haven't talked about the film so much. Directed by Ed Lockman. There's a moment in the the film of Songs for Jello, which is great on its own, and we could talk about on a whole other episode, probably just about the the film streaming on the Criterion Channel, folks. Beautiful yes, 2021 4K gorgeous. restoration. It looks the it looks, colors, the colors looks are incredible. just unbelievable. The blues and the greens and the reds. Mm. Can't say enough. Uh, and how about that black and white? <laughs> oh yeah, the black um, and white. That's <laughs> that's good too. The the moment I think I, I posted about it online today, and it, people have been receptive. Of, it's seven seconds before style it takes in the film of, of songs for Jella that are the best moment in a concert film I've ever seen. This seven seconds is better than all of stop making sense to me. It's just John giving the tiniest smile to Lou and Lou giving this tiny smile back and they look and lock eyes and go, okay, down to business. And they play the song. Yeah. Now, it takes seven seconds, and it's just, like, so loaded. The looks the and, two of them share are just, you know, the, 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 the smoldering chemistry. That's just, <laughs> You could, you know, make a, a joke about, like, get someone who looks at you, like... No, not even a joke. I've said it before, a romance for the ages. Literally, sincerely, no irony truly, yeah, whatsoever. Sure. The two of them and just this, like, outrageous... Uh, destructive, uh, violent, hot fire chemistry between the two of them. It's there's nothing like it. But what's extraordinary about this is that you, there's a third person there, which is Andy, and that they are doing this for him. I, I think his presence gives them license to be more vulnerable with one another. Like they they would not have been able to enter into this sort of uh, relationship again. Uh, if it were just the two of them and they wouldn't have been as willing to, you know, uh, just really kind of take everything on just the two of them together, were it not for this other third presence that they could say, oh, I'm not really doing this for that guy over there. I'm doing it for Andy. When in reality, they're doing it for Andy, but they're also very much doing it for that guy on the other side of the stage. There's something about that which reminds me of just kind of a principle that I think is why anything works on our show often which is that i don't know we've gotten people on the show who i think it would be kind of crazy to just ask to talk to us it's not like you know we wouldn't they wouldn't want to just talk to us but when we all want to talk about bob dylan or lou reed or john kale mm-hmm. suddenly we're all it, it we i mean there's Without naming names, definitely people we, we've been just like, I can't believe they were just on the show. Yeah, well, yeah, just go back and look at the list of guests on the show. And anytime there's a big name, you can assume that it was one of these people. It's that quality of uniting in, in an affection and appreciation. This is a very intimate and a particular moment of that that I just had to point out. 
before they go into style it takes one of the great songs on songs for jello there's there's just this magical moment that i think is the best on that whole film no question you've got the money mm, i've, got the, I've time. got the time you want your freedom make your freedom mine it's just every line in this is incredible this thing of, that the record does so well of figuring out of of watching warhol make the case for things for himself and the people that he's ostensibly talking to and you feel like you're privy to it in the moment and the song just brings that feeling of romance across it's a really a love song about we can make art together don't you see that we can do this together <laughs> like so that moment that they have right before this song just it feels perfect because it is you've got the money I've got the time You want your freedom Make your freedom mine Cause I've got the style it takes And money is all that it takes You've got connections And I've got the art You like attention And I like your looks And I have the style it takes you know the people it takes Why don't you sit right over there We'll do a movie portrait I'll turn the camera on And I won't even be there A portrait that moves You look great, I think Warhol, who's not really a romantic character in many people's eyes certainly not i think that it's a matter of changing your perspective to know what kind of thing to look for when someone like warhol is being romantic it's not going to look like when someone else is it manifests in this other way of let's get into business together let's put on a show in the most removed way possible (laughs) you put on the show i'll be somewhere else but i want it to happen i think that that john taking vocal on this one is also significant because you know it is i think important to note that like i think you said earlier that this is a record like honoring andy and it it certainly is you know if there's going to be one thing that it's doing honor is probably the right the right way to phrase it but at the same time it's an opportunity to for certainly for Lou to unpack uh, and and assess uh, the contentious uh, and fractious relationship that he had with with Andy over the course of his career, his life, uh, and so not every uh, song, every line, and every song is necessarily adulatory of Andy. Uh, you know, he he's a three dimensional, he's a flawed character in this in this um, in this piece, and uh, and I think. In, in my reading, at least, in particular, Lou's vocals are very straight, very deadpan, barely even singing in many cases. And he seems, in my memory at least, to take on the kind of bulk of the lines that paint some of the more uh, questionable or negative qualities of Andy. Uh, and then you've got something like Style It Takes from John. And John is, John is singing. John sounds beautiful. This song sounds consciously beautiful in the way that the previous songs did not, in the way that many of the songs that follow also do not. And so you're getting this kind of like dual portrait of the man from these two artists together. And depending on who is singing and how they're singing, you're getting a different kind of emotional kind of resonance to it. Um, DeCurtis writes interestingly about this in the book. He says, though he, John, and Warhol had not stayed in close touch, Kale had never experienced the deep ambivalence toward him that Lou had. Uh, And now quoting John, who says, I don't think Lou could have had a clue how I felt about Andy. I had always felt emotionally close to Andy, always. And he always welcomed me whenever I showed up at the factory. Not always the case with Lou, who there is a moment in the fucking thing, on the record that we're going to come to, I hate Lou. 
We'll get there when we get there. But style it takes is just a really touching moment where the the you know the honor element of this whole project really comes through, and it's most mostly affected by John and his beautiful vocals. This also brings us to this idea that I was really really moved by a few months ago when I first saw this interview, which I've talked about a lot, where Lou in nineteen ninety something 80 something is interviewed and asked about what it was like to be produced in quotes you know by Andy Warhol the interviewer asks so he was a catalyst and Lou says he was a protector they're talking about Warhol's uh stance of don't don't add or take I just don't don't touch this band. Let them do their thing. Record it as it is. Make sure these songs get put out as they are originally organically coming across. The songs with dirty words, make sure you record them that make way. Make sure you record them <laughs> that way. So we'll get in the next song. But that that attitude, you know, Lou refers to it as this kind of protectorship of something wild being given room to live. And there's a funny line in this, you know, where he says... I mean, it's one of the funnier things just to hear if you're not prepared. Where he says, "This is a rock group called the Velvet, Velvet Underground. Underground," and uh, I show movies on them. Do you like the sound? Because they have a style that grates. A style that grates. Clearly, Warhol appreciated that aspect of them. And John has said uh, that when they were doing that, you know, when Warhol was a filmmaker, you know, just abandoned painting and went into film. Uh, and had the Velvets play to these movies or have the movies on them, whatever the case, uh, the bigger the difference was like between the sound they were making and the content of the film, the more dramatic, the more tension there was right. uh, and the better it was. It's referenced in this song, you know, that part of their relationship, that aspect of it, that when Warhol meets the Velvets, he, he sees them as, kind of like a tool for his art a canvas on which to paint yeah whatever it was he didn't want to mess with them he wanted them to be there and that's what this song is about too it's about the subjects of his movies about him just being i just want you to be there i don't want evidence of myself i want what these things are to be what they are And this song suggests more than I think any other that this is how Andy Warhol showed his love. I've got a Brilla box and I say it's odd. It's the same one you can buy at any supermarket. Because I've got the style it takes. And you've got the people it takes. This is a rock group called the Velvet Underground I show movies on them, do you like the sound? Cause they have a style that grates And I have art to make Let's do a movie here next week We don't have sound, but you're so great, you don't have to speak. You've got the style it takes, kiss. You've got the style it takes, eat. You've got the style it takes, catch. You've got the style it takes. That's the romantic side of Andy, but then the actual getting things done. It's work. Yes. <laughs> the ethic ran through his bones. So we're finally speaking from Lou's perspective at this point, uh, and, and it'll become very clear you know, shortly into this song uh, when there's an actual just conversation between he, Andy, and I, Lou. But um, you know, and this is another just like fantastically creative and unexpected dramatic dimension to this 
musical, uh, which has been told from the point of view of the protagonist the entire time so far through the voices of, you know, these other ancillary characters. And now all of a sudden we're hearing from the ancillary character himself speaking to the protagonist. It's just like there's so much wrapped up in here. Again, it's it's unbelievable how um, kind of detailed and 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 complex and and like webs crossing. It, there's there's so much going on, as simple and Spartan as it sounds, uh, and that might be part of the reason that it has to sound so sp- simple and Spartan. There, I think I read somewhere that at one point they were thinking about orchestrating this whole thing the way that they did for for Words for the Dying, and that I'm sure that would have been amazing, but at the same time would have been the wrong you know the wrong thing to do because the the power and uh, legibility of this whole thing, really, based on just the two of them putting it across, is is so perfect. And that power of legibility is so true to the subject. I mean, that is Warhol to a T. Right. It's just a fucking Campbell's can on a canvas. Like there, it's right there. There is no hidden. You know, it's not like you're looking at it from the wrong angle, or you're missing something, or you didn't attend the right class. Uh, you know, in college to understand it. It's just, it's right there. It's all there on the surface for you. And in that simplicity is room for you to think and to feel. Yeah. The last song is kind of this I sort of dreamy, idealized vision of Warhol at a point when he still is kind of wide-eyed and innocent. And I don't know that that ever fully left, but to make things actually happen required this sort of martial attitude that belies that dreaminess and that feeling of romance in whatever way it existed for Warhol, it didn't really show up in the way that he actually operated. Warhol has to believe in the people and the subject of his work, but then the actual act of making it is like, the dreaming part is over. Make it happen. Andy was a Catholic, the ethic ran through his bones He lived alone with his mother, collecting gossip and toys Every Sunday when he went to church, he'd kneel in his pew and he'd say It's work, all that matters is work He was a lot of things, what I remember the most He'd say, I got to bring home the bacon, someone's got to bring home the roast He'd get to the factory early If you asked him, he'd have told you straight out It's work We are out of the beautiful, dreamy John world and the beautiful John vocal and we are into, really, you know, kind of the closest thing back to the the fury, the sound and the fury of uh, the Velvets as you're going to get on this record with this pounding piano and Lou's just like scronking guitar and again, we're hearing this from Lou himself, and you get some really funny lines, uh, you know, at, uh, you know towards, towards the beginning. No matter what I did, it never seemed enough. He said I was lazy. I said I was young. He said, how many songs did you write? I'd written zero. I lied, I lied and said 10. ten. You won't be young forever. You should have written 15. But that's apparently a real uh, interaction, basically. A real interaction, yeah, absolutely. And so is this other one later. Um, uh, Andy sat down to talk one day. He said, decide what you want. Do you want to expand your parameters or play museums like some dilettante? I, I, Lou Reed, first instance of Lou Reed here uh, again on this song. I fired him on the spot. He got red and called me a rat. It was the worst word he could think of. I've never seen him like that. Andy sat down to talk one day. He said, decide what you want. Do you want to expand your parameters or play the museums like some dilettante? I fired him on the spot. He got red and he called me a rat It was the worst word that he could think of I'd never seen him like that It was work I thought he said it's just work Then he says it's work I thought he said it's just work Right there's a way that the song uses the idea of work and this ethic, which clearly Lou understands the, by the way he introduces it. But then in the middle of the song, he's back at these moments when he didn't understand why it was like that. He, it just seemed like bullying. It just seemed like empty bullshit. 
like busy work. And the way that the song holds these two ideas coming through Lou at the same time is just so intense with this kind of seesaw of right. the past and the present, what I knew then, what I know now. For all of his aggression and terseness, Lou is absolutely a total romantic. And the way that Warhol is, is so removed from the way that Lou is romantic. There, There's this kind of tragic star-crossed lovers thing of like, you need to do this so that the beautiful thing can happen. Mm. And Lou is just like, I'm doing my best. And he probably was doing his best, too. Mm-hmm. They both want the same thing, but it's impossibility of communication, uh, of of working together. Right. Yeah, and, and the honesty that, that Lou is, is showing here and, and uh, the, the forthrightness with which he deals with something like this is part of what gives this whole project just the extraordinary heft and weight and, and power that it ultimately has. It's not just him saying, oh, I love Andy Warhol, isn't he great? This is like one of the, the, the generational defining rock stars of this whole fucking thing, music in general, and one of the generational defining artists of the the you know the 20th century in America, and like this just explosive relationship between the two of them, it's like nuclear fusion at the heart of this whole record. And I think the sound of this song in particular reflects just the the overwhelming fury, um, love and fury, both ends of that spectrum that someone like Lou would have felt. That thing of him saying it's work. I thought he said it's just work. It goes, it's like, I mean, the lyrics in this are just so fucking genius because they say so much more than they seem to. And the way that the song starts, Andy was a Catholic, the ethic ran through his bones. And it's work. I thought he said it's just work. You already know at the very beginning of the song that this thing is deeper than just being productive for Andy Warhol. And you also see in the song that there's this crucial point where Lou misunderstands that. And also, you see that now Lou knows that it was not just that simple, that this work thing meant something more to Andy than he understood at the time. And then there's that thing of he got red and he called me a rat. It was the worst word that he could think of, which is like so funny (laughs) and sad. It's funny. It's also sad. Yeah. It's funny that the worst word that he could think of is rat, but at the same time, it's sad that he called Lou the worst word that he could think of. Exactly. I mean, that there it is. It's like when someone says, I'm disappointed in you instead of I'm right. I'm not mad mad at you. Yeah. And later, you know, it, it becomes clear that this interaction or ones like it compounded ended up being really the reason why Lou and Andy, um, Lou couldn't go back right. to Andy. And, and wouldn't go back. And know, wouldn't make, go back. Continued to make a conscious choice every time, you know, many times throughout his career over the years not to reconcile with Andy. And, and you know that Andy just wanted the best for him there. Um, you need to do this work. <laughs> it's just the thing that said it over the edge apparently when Orhal was a young kid he did go to church all the time and he would spend hours and hours looking up at these icons you know in on the stained glass church in, in the church in pittsburgh and i'll just leave that there Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean know, the, it says the, a lot. The Catholic element of Warhol, I think, is, I mean, it's funny that the song is called Work, and yet he's a Catholic, not a Protestant, because you typically think of, you know, the, the Protestants are the one with the work ethic, or so they, they want you to believe. But uh, I think the Catholic element definitely shines through the, the majesty and the, the delight in uh, grandeur and splendor. Uh, you know, in, in Warhol's case, the splendor and grandeur of the Brillo box. And his pals, Lou and John. Well, that was, uh, this has been a, uh, this has been work, but it's been good work. I feel like we're just scratching the surface and we're about seven minutes into the record, Uh, but we got most of the throat clearing out of the way uh, at the beginning of this one. 
so we can get right into it, get right into the work. When we flip the record and go to side B next week, uh, you're going to have to wait a whole week, folks, uh, for us to come back and uh, get back into it. But in the meantime, there's going to be treats for you galore on the Jokerman Patreon. Till next time. Keep up the good work. Andy said a lot of things. I start them all away in my head. Sometimes when I can't decide what I should do, I think, what would Andy have said? He'd probably say, you think too much. That's because there's work that you don't want to do. It's work. The most important thing is work. It's work. The most important thing is work. The advantage of having Andy Warhol as a producer was that because he was Andy Warhol, they left everything in its pure state. And they would say, is that okay, Mr. Warhol? And he'd say, oh, yeah. And so they didn't change anything. And so right at the very beginning, we experienced what it was like to be in the studio and record things our way and have essentially total freedom. The record company never listened to the records in the first place, so they came out exactly like they'd been made. And we got to experience that freedom, but the only real reason I think we had that freedom is because Andy, as the quote producer, was saying, oh, that's great. And they say, oh, well, should we do this and that to He said, oh, no, you should, it's really great. So he was a catalyst. He was a protector. <laughs>